Welcome everyone to the Wild West podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. Today, we're excited to welcome Adrian Ballinger and Emily Harrington, together one of the preeminent power couples in outdoor sports. Um, Adrian is a mountain guide who has summited Mount Everest eight times. Emily is a pro rock climber um, with five national sport climbing titles under her belt. They live together in Squaw Valley, and they spend their days doing all the things you'd imagine professional adventure athletes do. Uh, So backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, um, trail running, and uh, of course planning their next international expeditions. Adrian recently returned from his 11th season on Everest. Um, He guides for his company uh, called Alpenglow Expeditions. And what's really interesting about what Adrian is doing is he's pioneering a new way of climbing the world's tallest mountains. So uh, I'm going to get into the weeds real quick because we talk in the pod about exactly what he's doing. And basically, he's embraced using hypoxic tents, which are these airtight chambers that simulate the low oxygen environments you encounter at high elevations. So he and his clients spend about eight hours a day in these tents in the weeks before a climb to kind of pre-acclimatize before they get to the mountains so that when they get there, they can just get going. And so that means an expedition that might take traditional climbers three months takes Adrian and his crew like five weeks. Um, So Adrian calls these lightning ascents. Emily is in the midst of expanding her presence in uh, outdoor adventure sports from rock climbing to mountaineering and backcountry skiing, and she's begun to take on a more socially proactive role with her fame and influence. Um, So she posts on social media about issues like climate change and gender equality, um, and she's really utilizing her stature in a way that many pro athletes are being criticized for these days. Um, If you think about the outspoken football and basketball players in the NFL and the NBA who are taking heat for expressing their political views. Adrian and Emily visited the Chronicle's headquarters in downtown San Francisco recently, and they sat down for what turned into a wide-ranging discussion. So we talked about the cutting edge of mountain climbing, the environmental costs of global travel, rock climbing's inclusion in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, and then, of course, their favorite places to play in California. Thanks for coming on the podcast, guys. I appreciate it. The first thing I wanted to tee up with you guys, just to kind of get into it, is uh, you both moved from Colorado to California. Is that right? So I'm curious, basically, why California is better than Colorado. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we talk about this all the time. Yes, we do. <laughs> Go for it. Okay. I moved to California, actually, because of Adrian. When we met, um, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I'm from, born and raised. And he lived in Tahoe. And I didn't really know that California was better than Colorado. I had yet to find (laughs) out. Um, And, yeah, we met and started dating, and I moved here pretty much right away. And, you know, I think it's just California kind of has everything. It's kind of the state that has everything. It has the mountains. It has the ocean. Yeah all the playing it has the best weather it kind of has the best food there's a lot yeah and Colorado has some of those things but it's just not quite it's just not quite there (laughs) and I'm allowed to say that because I was born in Colorado (laughs) yeah (laughs) what um yeah but the mountains at well so Adrian what do you think yeah you know so I'm not allowed to say that because I uh was not born in Colorado but I was basically I was born in England and just like basically have been moving westwards ever since so I was like England born lived for a few years then New England Massachusetts school in DC 
and then Colorado right after college. And that was like the ultimate. That's where I had always dreamed of being. And I ended up spending like uh, nine years, you know, in a couple of different great towns in Colorado, like Telluride and Aspen, and loved the ski towns, loved being able to walk to ski lifts. But I found myself, I kept coming to the Sierra and Tahoe to play because the rock was better and the snow was more stable were the two biggest things, okay. specifically for my sports. And uh, so finally I decided to just try a season here and it happened to be a great, big, huge winter season at Squaw. And I was like, oh my gosh, it must always be like this. I'm never gonna go anywhere <laughs> else. And I've been here for a decade now. And while the snow has not always been like that, the uh, the community and the people a- around Tahoe and the variety, how everyone does everything in Tahoe, if that makes sense, from a sport perspective and a work perspective. I, I just really enjoy that. Yeah, you guys live, do you live in Squaw Valley or near Squaw Valley? We live in Squaw Valley. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, so we're kind of right across the parking lot in, in one of the old condos there. It's, yeah. it's pretty wild. So we have cruiser bikes. We just ride cruiser bikes with studded snow tires to the lifts each day in the winter oh, nice. to go skiing. And I now have an office there for my guide company, Alpenglow Expeditions. So over time, it's like truly become our home base. Like we'll, we'll go days without leaving the valley. And it's a pretty small valley. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you guys, so one thing I wanted to ask about was, um, Adrian, with Alpenglow, you guys have recently, it sounds like, sort of persuaded the resort and also the landowners adjacent to the resort to open up more of the terrain, the backcountry terrain for skiing there. And I'm just curious, like, basically what that process looked like and why it's kind of important to have more terrain for skiers to explore back there. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right, sort of what's happened. And so, you know, for me, I've been internationally guiding for 20-something years. And when I started Alpenglow Expeditions, it was only an international guide company. But it was always my dream to be able to guide at home and introduce more people to climbing and backcountry skiing than you can do by trying to persuade someone to go to the Himalaya. And uh, Tahoe is obviously this great playground, but there had been a moratorium on permits for new guide companies for 30-something years, um, because commercial use of public lands is something that has to be approached cautiously. Um, But over a period of nine years, finally, the Forest Service said yes to our company being able to guide on public lands in Tahoe. And then that led to us persuading Squaw to let us uh, ride their lifts and then access the backcountry. And I think it's important because backcountry skiing especially is just exploding in the United States, but people don't necessarily know exactly how to approach it and how to do it safely. And there is real hazard out there, even in a relatively safe snowpack like Tahoe's. So uh, getting to sort of spread the word and introduce people is our goal. Is there Are there any other spots? I'm just curious, since you guys are kind of exploring some of the the unexplored or less less explored places around the Sierra, if there are any other spots that you feel like have kind of untapped potential or places that you wish there was like better access to or more access to? Does anything come to mind? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole east side, so all the way from Tahoe down to below Bishop, it is truly, I think, some of the best mountain terrain in the United States. Um, the truth is the access is really difficult, um, but I think that's also part of its appeal. It's not yeah. like Europe. You know, it's, Europe, where you... It's, it's just like, yeah, in Europe, you can just go take a lift, basically, to the top of any mountain, and the Sierra is not like that at all. Uh, it's, it's pretty empty, and you can go... I mean, you can drive from Tahoe a couple hours down the east side and be totally alone. And I think that that's part of why we like it so much. Um, but it, And it's 
so it's massive it's just there's so much to do there's so yeah. much to explore and it's re- pretty easy to go be alone yeah yeah that's awesome yeah so is it uh you're talking about like skiing or climbing or like mountaineering or all of the above i mean i think we're talking biking. about all everything. three and i would add trail running to that <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah. like when when we go out those are sort of the four ways we recreate i guess backcountry skiing uh rock climbing Mountaineering sort of fits into both of those because you're generally, when you're in the Sierra, you're on kind of big mountains, often 13 and 14,000 foot peaks. Um, and then we try to do a lot where we mix trail running into that. So going lighter, running to approach climbing objectives and then climbing things and doing it kind of in a day. We both spend a lot of times intense already in our lives. <laughs> so we try to minimize that when we're home, actually. Yeah. I want to come back to that because that's obviously kind of like what's at the heart of this lightning ascents idea that sure. you and Alpenglow have been kind of pioneering. But first, I reached out to some of your guys' friends, actually, to get ideas for what kinds of stuff I should ask you. Oh, cool. And, uh, <laughs> and, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And uh, a couple of them got back to me. And what they basically said was like, Adrian is the clear... Adrian is clearly the better mountain climber. Emily is very clearly the better rock climber. Yes. They're both kind of getting into skiing and running. Who is the better skier and who is the better oh, runner? Damn. Oh, that's a that's interesting. Well, so this is gonna get us in trouble. The thing, I mean, Adrian has kind of committed a lot of time to skiing over the last few decades. Um, but when did you start skiing? When you were like 12? or I started skiing, no, when 14. I moved to the States. So I was probably seven years old. Okay. And I actually grew up skiing. I started okay. skiing when I was two and was a ski racer until I was probably 13 or 14. And then I quit skiing for climbing. But I had that like really solid base of being a ski racer. And that like technique never goes away. And so I think when you when you compare the two of us, we're actually like very different skiers. Um, She's being so, so diplomatic. diplomatic. <laughs> I think I'm better. I think I'm just better foundationally at skiing because I've been doing it. It's like anything. When you start doing it before you can walk, you just have it ingrained in you. Like I yeah. picked it up 15 years later and it just felt like I had done it three days ago. And so, but that said, Adrian has more experience than me in the big mountains and with really hard, scary styles of skiing. Did you say that? You nailed it. And Adrian is... <laughs> yeah, no, I would totally agree. Like, uh, technique-wise and, and style-wise, Emily looks like a racer, even when she's big mountain powder skiing or whatever. And that is a really powerful, um, impressive style. And, um, yeah, I, I my style is probably not so good, but I'm really comfortable in exposed steep skiing. That's what I've sort of spent years and years doing in in the Alps and things like that. Yeah. And then with running, it's just Adrian's I just crush a faster her. runner. Really? For sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that is just because of the mountaineering background and like the high altitude climbing and like endurance wise, he's just will always have that edge. Just the same reason that I'll always be a better rock climber. Yeah. But but it, it is something we joke about a lot. Yeah. So now for the past couple of years, there's been this great uh, ultra race in the Squaw Valley called the Broken Arrow Sky Race. Yeah, you guys both did that recently, yeah. right? We, we've done it two years now. Yeah. Okay. Two years in a row. It's been around for three years. And so we both run the same distance, which is, you know, 34 miles with 12,000 feet of elevation gain. And it's in literally in our backyard on the trails we always run. So it's so much fun. You guys have um, kind of an advantage. We, we do. Definitely I mean, we run, the, we run on the course a lot <laughs> 
before nice. the race. <laughs> but, you know, two years ago, I had just come back from Everest without oxygen. So, you know, that's my excuse for why I wasn't performing very well. But my first lap, I was way faster than Emily and because it's a two-lap course. Okay. And then the second lap, M was like 45 minutes faster than me. And I still just stayed ahead in overall time. But I could just feel, you know, friends would tell me around the course, like, she's getting closer, she's getting closer <laughs> through checkpoints and stuff like that. So I actually feel a lot of pressure there. M's a super strong runner. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so I was cur- I'm curious, actually. So Emily, like, rock climbing obviously is more like um, kind of power and strength. And mountain climbing, especially at, like, the super high elevations, yeah. is more endurance. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious if, like, spending so much time in hypoxia tents – is that what is that how hypoxic tense hypoxic yeah. tense um and also just at elevation like has a, a residual effect like just doing it for the the amount of time that you've been doing it has like an overall residual effect because i know that like coming down from elevation right you like you lose it all right the red blood cells go away right. and you, your body kind of like re- like resumes equilibrium um but doing it like so long is there anything that kind of sticks around that gives you like an advantage in, I don't know, running or, or other endurance activities? Yeah. I mean, I think when you come home from an expedition, you still have residual red blood cells for like a few weeks and it's a catch 22 for sure. Like running your lungs feel great, Mm -hmm. but your legs are so out of shape because altitude just eats away at your muscles. Yeah, Yeah. And so yeah, you might, like, your lungs will last forever, but your legs won't. And then in, for rock climbing, it's terrible. It's completely <laughs> horrible for your rock climbing because all your strength goes away and you can't pull and your muscle is like, been eating itself at altitude Interesting. for weeks. And so it's actually the worst thing you can do for your rock climbing, which is why I like to go faster and not spend as much time okay. at altitude. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because that's kind of your bread and butter activity, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I would say now I, I kind of split it up half and half. I do both. Um, I do a lot of both, and I try. I'm constantly trying to like balance that, and it's quite. It's a. It's a struggle for sure. Um, and I would say that I'm more passionate about rock climbing still, and I still want to. I have a lot of things I want to accomplish in rock climbing, but it's, it's pretty hard to do both. And so that's like my Rock current climbing and mountain climbing. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my and skiing. All of the things that I do are they kind of contradict each other and they balance each other out. But it's really hard to strike that balance for me. Do you feel like you have to pick one at some point? Like it's it's sort of rock climbing kind of got you into the mm-hmm. that's how you like worked your way into the professional sport, sport yeah. sphere. Do you feel like you have some room to kind of range now or how do you see that unfolding going forward I definitely have some room to like grow in all the different areas I feel like um but for me it's it is it's hard because I'm not you know I'm not at the top of the rock climbing world anymore because I'm older and I've chosen to pursue other disciplines and everyone's specializing so much now um, so I feel like for me, career-wise, it's really good for me to to be really versatile and to be able to kind of do everything at a at a pretty high level. Um, I think that that's like my thing, you know, is that I can do everything at this point um, at a high level. But that said, I still have these very specific goals that I want to accomplish, and that requires 
like sacrificing in some areas. Okay. Um, and so it's hard. It is a hard balance for me. Yeah. For sure. And then, so on top for you, Emily, on top of the, um, the actual sports and performance, um, it seems like you've been kind of. I don't know if I'm misreading this, but it seems like you've been sort of branching out a little bit, and you've done. You did like the, um, the North Face speaker series uh-huh. and supported some of these other causes that are a little more on like the. Uh, like advocacy and sort of yeah. education yeah. side of this. So I'm just curious, like how you sort if you if you feel if you feel like you're gonna incorporate more of that into your you know your career as you go forward or how that's gonna work. Yeah, of a hundred percent. I think as a professional athlete in this day and age, it's not. It just isn't sustainable to only perform your sport and then post a couple Instagrams about it and have that be acceptable. Um, I think that now we have such large voices and we can reach a lot of people and we have a large audience and it is our responsibility to kind of have a voice about things that are outside of of just going rock climbing or just going into the mountains because the truth is our sports and our industry and everything are all affected by what happens in our government and what happens you know, with with women and and all of these things. And I think it's important to speak to that and to be able to influence people and be able to kind of say how what my opinions are. And um, I I think it's becoming a part of the job, actually, for everyone, not just me, uh, to have that voice and to encourage people to really think about these bigger issues. Yeah. And so is that like, what are the main kind of avenues that you have for reaching people? There's like, I mean, Instagram seems like kind of the main one, maybe. Instagram Um, is my chosen platform. Okay. Um, I think it's where my audience is most engaged and uh, I think it's where they participate. And it's the one I've chosen to, to be more active on. That said, I'm, I, I do think that I could probably use like branching out into Twitter a little more even though I really don't want to um (laughs) but that is a good news source (laughs) and that is where I get a lot of my news um but yeah Instagram right now is is the platform and then I go a lot through my sponsors as well um you know working with them on certain campaigns and things that we all you know collectively feel like we care about yeah yeah uh this brings up an interesting point so I don't want to compare Instagram followings, but we should probably compare Instagram followings, right? Yeah. So I think uh, Emily, not even close, right? <laughs> Emily, yeah. as I checked the numbers, I'm not guessing. <laughs> Emily's at one has more than 158,000 at the moment, and Adrian's right around 90,000 right now. Yep. Yeah, it's true. It's tough. Are you, are you just guessing that everything is a competition between us? <laughs> I couldn't help but check both as all I'm saying. Yeah. No, absolutely. But like insofar as it's this platform, I mean, you see the kind of the kinds of posts that uh, Emily that you put up and they're like, they oftentimes, I mean, sometimes it's just like, you know, stoke photos, but like oftentimes there's sort of a clear point or message yeah. that you're trying to convey. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's it's the way that I choose to communicate with the people who follow me and yeah I mean it's the way that I've chosen to express my voice I mean we used to have like blogs and stuff but I've just found that people don't have the attention span for that anymore so (laughs) yeah is this something that actually comes up in the Ballinger Harrington household the Instagram followings or the the influence 
I don't know. I feel like we just have such different followings. Like Adrian's focus is if he posts a photo of a mountain, it just like explodes. People are all over it and they're so engaged. And also he has a huge Snapchat following, which I don't, I don't Snapchat at all. Um, And so it's just very different, I think, in a good way. I'd say we don't compete through our social media too much. We probably joke about it some. You know, I actually learned about Instagram from Emily. Yeah. Um, And actually, I think you started Snapchatting before I did, too. too. But then I I just had an opportunity with this whole, like, Everest No Filter thing to really grow an audience on on Snapchat. We just got lucky with timing and and things like that. Um, But, yeah, we, we joke about it a lot. Sure. I didn't mean to slight you, Adrian. <laughs> I forgot about the Snapchat. Yeah, yeah. he no does filter. have to bring um, that wait, up. Way to, you know, credit. He has to bring up Snapchat. <laughs> you brought it up. I know, but I, I did it ahead of time, so you didn't. <laughs> so I didn't have to. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting that you say, like, um, you know, these days you're looking to kind of get what you want to get out of the outdoors and then sort of get back to the car or get back home. And I imagine that's because you guys spend so much time traveling i mean is that is that like fair to say yeah that's right like i still love every day i'm in the mountains and i still spend we both still spend a lot of time in tents and on uh, sort of out far out but yeah when we're at home we love home too we love tahoe we have a great dog that we got about a year ago that's such a big part of our play and lives now and so yeah i do think certainly myself like if i can do something more quickly um, and still get the full experience, but compress it. Uh, I try to through athleticism or through kind of like technology. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, where I'm going with this is obviously the lightning ascents, which is, um, for people who aren't familiar, who are listening to this, it's basically, um, something that Adrian and Alpenglow have been, uh, pioneering the last several years now. Yeah. Yeah. We started um, in 2012. Right. Okay. And so the idea is that the typical, um, a, a typical trip to a place like Everest, say, um, would take a, would take a number of months for like the average client, which is just a person who wants to climb the mountain and will pay a guide to take them up. And so you're basically trying to cut that time down. That's right. right. Yeah. So traditional expeditions to Everest, and like when Emily went to Everest in 2012, her expedition was almost three months long. Yeah. That's and a lot. now we're not running any trips longer than 35 days. And we're doing it as fast as this season. We had a team of clients, very capable, experienced clients, but still clients. And they climbed both the sixth tallest mountain in the world, Choyu, and Everest back to back in 23 days. So USA door to door, 23 days all in. Yeah, which is it's safe to say that probably hasn't been done before. Not that that's a common thing for people to do is like hit two at one time and try to do it as quickly as possible. But Absolutely right. To have the whole expedition in, to our knowledge, you know, including all the travel and logistics time and all that, to our knowledge, no one's done two 8,000-meter peaks that quickly. Um, and, and I love, you know, I'm kind of a nerd about logistics, so I not only like the physical side and the challenge of being tired after big days, I also really like this challenge of spending five months trying to perfect logistics so that nothing goes wrong, or as things go wrong, you can manage it so you can do things that quickly. Uh, so it kind of fits my personality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so this year you guys went, and I'm sorry, can you just talk about what 
you did this year in terms of the the trip to Everest? How many people you took and how long you guys were out there? Yeah, um, so so on Everest this season in 2018, uh, Alpenglow Expeditions had two teams. We had a main team doing a 35-day trip on the mountain, what we call our rapid ascent climb. Right. And then I had... We, alongside that a smaller group of three climbers um, who I've been climbing with for years and and are just phenomenal athletes and we're very ready for Everest and so we decided to try to go as quickly as we can to do these two climbs the sixth tallest mountain show you and the tallest peak Everest uh, back to back from the Tibetan side um, so we sort of threw everything we had at it. We had two mountain guides, five incredible Sherpa, these three athlete, athlete climbers, and, uh, and, and we went fast. I think we summited Choyu nine days after arriving in country. Um, and then Everest, we would have been all done probably in 14 or 15 days, except we had a, a, a pretty significant um, systems failure. Our, regula- our oxygen regulators right. actually failed above 28,000 feet. And what seemed like a perfect, easy summit day in the best weather you could possibly imagine turned into like actually a real challenge to get everyone down safely without frostbite or, or real injury. Yeah. And then if I'm understanding it right... Um that group stayed behind at base camp, but then the I think the rapid ascent group went all the way to the summit and back. Is that right? Yeah. So the main Alpenglow group had essentially climbed, you know, an eighty-six hundred meter mountain before this accident or this before this incident and descended. And the level of exhaustion that causes not many people would want to climb two eight thousand meter right. peaks back to back. Um, so that team made the you know really sort of difficult and heartbreaking and not fully unanimous decision to call their expedition at that point but the small private team i was climbing with decided to try one more time so we sort of rested for 36 hours worked with our sherpa to how we could restock what we absolutely needed to but it there just wasn't enough time to do a full restock of the mountain so actually instead of using four camps on the mountain we used one camp on the mountain and just went for this massive epic summit day push and it worked out so the small team uh the 10 of us five sherpa and and five climbers uh stood on top yeah and then you guys and then basically after you were done you came down went to the airport and flew home exactly like, yeah one one of our team members had a, a son's graduation to go to there was an actual absolute hard line deadline that uh, he couldn't miss. So by making this last attempt after the oxygen failures, it meant that we basically had to just continue moving at all times. So within 36 or 40 hours, we went from, you know, the high camp to the summit of Everest, down to ABC, advanced base camp, continued 12 miles to base camp, threw everything into a duffel, gotten a Jeep for, you know, a nine-hour Jeep ride, and then a 20-hour flight back to the States, and he, he made graduation by a few hours, I think. So <laughs> it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> and so the so apart from, like, the logistics and planning, the main uh, kind of tool to make this happen, to, to allow people to go to these places um, and uh, achieve at altitude so quickly is the use of these hypoxic tents. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I'd say that the primary thing is still what's always been true, which is the ability to physically and mentally suffer uh, <laughs> at altitude. That has not changed over all this time. And actually, on these shorter trips, we compress all that suffering. So even though it's fewer days, it, it's pretty intense. Like when Emily and I went and climbed and skied Cho Yu in like 14 days, USA to USA, like 
we didn't have a lot of fun along the way in the in the traditional sense. It was definitely type two fun. Right. So that is still the essential pod. But the other along with that sort of willingness to take on a trip like that, the other part that really helps us is, as you were alluding to, um, pre-acclimatization through hypoxic tents at home. So we actually get people used to almost 20,000 feet of altitude or 6,000 meters uh, over months in hypoxic tents at home before going to the mountain. Yeah, so they have to sleep in one every night, is that right? They have to spend at least eight hours in this hypoxic chamber each night or each day, each 24 hours. Less than that, and the effects don't seem to sort of like set in because your body's resetting when it's not at altitude. Um, And so at least eight hours for most of us, that's sleeping. For some people, it's watching movies, writing emails. We've had people uh, transfer their offices, transition their offices into full hypoxic chambers (laughs) so they can sit and do their work each day. I find sleeping in it not too horrendous, so I sleep in it. M hates sleeping in it. I was going to ask about that. <laughs> so <laughs> what happens when one person is sleeping in the hypoxic tent and the other person is... so? Right. Hypoxic training would be the single worst thing Emily could do when she's in a rock climbing phase because right. you're actually you know, reducing recovery sometimes and muscle building and things like that. So we... I mean... Adrian has like a, it's called a head tent. And so basically it's just like a little tent for your head, like a little thing that goes over just like his like chest and up. And kind of put your head through a gasket and and your your pillows in there. And so I can sleep outside and he can sleep in it and then it's fine. (laughs) It's really good for our personal lives. Yeah. Yeah. Because I refuse to sleep in it if I'm not going on a trip. Yeah. It's just not, it just sucks. Well, so have you guys, so you use them for uh, for Everest, obviously, and for like 8,000 meter peaks. Mm-hmm. But do you ever, I don't know, when you're trying to get a leg up on like the um, the local, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember, the, but the run in Broken town. Arrow. Yeah. Broken Arrow. Do you guys like, you're like, ah, maybe I should sleep in this thing for a no, week. And... It's not worth it. We oh, don't, no? but. I'm not that competitive. But we definitely notice increases in our performance oh, at home in so backcountry skiing yeah. in the skin track or on runs in the summer. You see, after as you're spending weeks in it, getting ready for a trip, how much stronger you're becoming. And we know friends now who live in the Bay, but come up every weekend yeah. to Tahoe and notice they're not as fast as their friends who live in Tahoe. Right. They're starting to use these tents um, to perform better uh, in Tahoe in the summer. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I don't need that, though. I wouldn't do it just to be, like, faster in the skin track. <laughs> I, I totally would. I might. I would. Yeah, I, I totally. wouldn't do it. Um, so have you – so when's the when's the next time you guys are going to use – when's the next time you guys are going to use these for a trip? Well, theoretically, within the next few weeks. Yeah, we well, back in the tent. we should be in the tent basically now when we come home from this trip to San Francisco uh, – you know, is the minimum amount of time to get ready for this Himalaya trip to, to Lhotse, the fourth tallest mountain in the world. So um, the funny thing is I'm actually going to go to Peru in about a week and spend two weeks at altitude in Peru. And so I actually don't need to get in the tent right now because that will acclimatize me. Okay. But Emily might need to use the head tent. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I'll stoked. use the head tent. I'm not stoked. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we're right in that period. You know, before Everest, we spend up to two months in the tent. That's sort of what we found to be really effective. 
um, a trip like this, uh, Lote, we're doing sort of like a, a little bit of a combo. We want to trek in really fast to the mountains. So instead of over 12 days, we want to basically do it as a run in two days. So we need some pre-acclimatization, but then we're going to shift into a more traditional style and try to ski some other smaller peaks before moving over to Lotse. So we don't need that full two month time in the tent. Yeah. And so, I mean, this sort of the way it's described, it kind of feels like a hack or like a cheat code or something to doing this stuff. And not that that's a bad thing, but I'm curious if you have seen more and more people start to do this. Like you mentioned friends who are going to come skinning in Tahoe might like utilize these tents for, I don't know, like days or weeks in advance so that they can kind of like get themselves up to the the Tahoe altitude. Um, But do you feel like more people are going to start doing this for endurance? events as instead of because like uh, otherwise people will go and they'll spend um a month in like santa fe or or denver or something like that where it's five thousand to seven thousand feet in elevation running around and just living before a big race or a big event yeah we've heard anecdotally like for instance the leadville uh 100 you know these long races that average above ten thousand feet yeah we've heard anecdotally from companies like hypoxico that we work with that up to 70 percent of competitors are using tents now because they used to have to go to leadville weeks in advance now they can stay home do their training things like that eat better sleep better yeah and pre-acclimatize so they're becoming they're super common in the endurance world and they're well proven in the endurance world they're starting to show up in mainstream sports. Like we heard recently, the Miami Heat was all using hypoxic trains during off-season, tra- hypoxic tents during off-season training. Yeah. Um, and in the mountains, yeah, it's becoming more and more common. I, you know, five years ago when Alpenglow started doing it, I felt like we were a total outlier and, and everyone just thought it was, you know, ridiculous. And now there's still plenty of purists who think it's ridiculous, but most, many of the major companies are now offering faster expeditions to big peaks got it so it's it's growing is there kind of i'm wondering if there's kind of an argument to be made uh for this sort of like pure climbing or whatever you want to call it that you know doesn't use hypoxic tents and actually involves like going to base camp um or whatever you might be you know going to the the mountain and like spending enough time there to actually get acclimatized like naturally yeah you know this is something i think about so much so i'm kind of like jumping in there but uh i absolutely think there is like uh, there are things people people you know some people feel there are things lost by doing hypoxic training and, and utilizing this and absolutely there are things lost like i think it's harder to build a team effectively when you're moving so quickly some of that downtime in base camp or super slow time trekking is when you form those bonds yeah. and there's something to be said to unplugging from our world today and spending you know weeks camping on a mountain and and, and having those experiences um so i think there are different ways to climb mountains for different people i don't think one is right or wrong they just fit different styles yeah and there are even times when i want to go slow and there are times when i want to go fast um but I don't see it as cheating. Um, you know, like the International Olympic Committee has determined that hypoxic tents are fully allowed by athletes in the Olympics. And hundreds and hundreds of athletes now utilize these tents before the Olympics. Um, they're exactly the same as traveling to somewhere and acclimatizing. Right. And so I feel comfortable ethically with using the tents. But style-wise, I think we each have to choose our style. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't mean to to like uh, imply that it was you know actually cheating or sure. should be yeah. you know whatever. Um, no, but it's a question we talk about a lot. You know, I, 
style is so important in climbing. I think maybe even more so than a lot of professional, other professional sports where there's very clear lines of what's right and wrong, what the rules are. Climbing doesn't have any rules. And so I think style really bubbles up is a very important part of it. Yeah. So as part of traveling so much, I wanted to ask you about this, Emily, because I spotted this. It must have been another Instagram post of yours. But I think recently you bought carbon offsets for your oh, yeah. travels. I bought it for Adrian for his travels. Oh, you did? Okay. For his birthday. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so what's the – this is kind of a question that I think about just as we talk about pro athletes who are typically pretty, like, environmentally conscientious – but also traveling to all of these mm-hmm. like remote destinations, which of course requires all of this transportation right. um, and like the environmental costs that come with that. Right. So I'm just curious, like what that, how you kind of, I don't know if that's something you've thought about a ton, but kind of how you reconcile those two things and mm-hmm. what you think the balance there is. I mean, we think about it and we talk about it all the time oh, okay. and we're very aware of the fact that our, when we travel so much, it makes our carbon footprint pretty huge compared to a lot of other people in the rest of the world and you know it is it it's not ideal it's not perfect um and we're both ambassadors for protect our winters so we're all very aware of the the toll that that takes but at the same time it is our jobs it's our jobs and it's our it's where our passion lies and you know we hope that that in addition to traveling a lot for our own sense of, you know, for our own accomplishments, um, we were serving another purpose, and that is to impact other people and tell stories and tell stories about the outdoors and raise awareness about about climate change and about other things that we care about and hopefully impact people on a much broader sense and and help them realize why we need to care about these things. And there's a good quote. I don't, I mean, Jeremy Jones says it and he's the one who's the founder of Protect Our Winners. And yeah. he always says, don't let perfect get in the way of good. Right. And that is like, none of us, I mean, just existing, we all are harming the environment <laughs> just by being human beings on the planet Earth. And that's an argument that every person can make. Like everyone can accuse you of, of being a hypocrite but at least we're trying and all we can do is try and we can try to do better we can buy carbon offsets and do the research and make and 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 though that's not a perfect solution either but it's something and the biggest thing that we can do is get people to vote you mentioned emily earlier like speaking up for different causes as being like a responsibility that just comes with the territory of being a pro athlete these days having this kind of audience you know what are the the causes that you kind of find yourself gravitating towards and advocating for i mean we talked about this last night it's that's interesting. Um, I think the one that I've chosen, I mean, I've, there's a few, but I think climate change is a really big one because it's one that impacts the entire world and it's irreversible. You know, there's certain issues that can like come and go depending on what kind of government we have and stuff like that. But climate change is something that if we keep on the path that we're on, it's not, we can't fix it in 50 years. And so we should we need to start thinking about it now. And it's such an uphill battle because it is really hard for people to wrap their head around something that's not like directly impacting them every day right now. And But it is a global thing. And I think, you know, with us, with Protect Our Winters, that's something that we've observed in all of our travels. And it's something that we believe in. 
and I think that that might be one of my one of my causes. And then the other one, more and more, especially with today's cli- political climate, is women's rights and just thinking more about stuff like that and in a different way than I think I have and anyone has before. Um, and especially in the outdoor industry, just just thinking more about that, thinking more about inclusivity and, um, yeah, thinking more about gender and, and race and all of those things um, and just being a little more open-minded about it. I don't think it's a particular cause. I think it's just something I'm more aware of and yeah. talking more about as an athlete. And I just think, you know, you always you get the occasional Instagram comment or – it says like, oh, stick to climbing. And it's like, that's just not, that's not, I'm sorry, you can unfollow me. That's not something I'm going to do anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think any of us are. That's not why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you were in town recently for the, um, I'm sorry, help me out, the speaker series. Yeah, the speaker series. Yep. Um, and you were doing that with Hillary Nelson. Hillary Nelson, yep. And, um, and so having gone through that, you did where else did you guys go? San Francisco and where else? We did uh, D.C., Austin, and San Francisco. Okay. So just having gone through that process, um, for, I'm curious what you guys talked about and then w- having gone through it, what you're sort of – what you've learned from it basically. Okay. Yeah. So it was a speaker series, which is – I've done many speaker series for the North Face over the years. And this one was totally different in that it wasn't just like a PowerPoint presentation where we went on a trip and we talked about a trip that we went on. It was uh, it was a panel discussion. So we had a journalist with us and then we had Hillary and I. And then at each stop, we had another speaker who was a guest. And in D.C., we had this woman, Laurel, who was a photographer, uh, but also very active in um, LGBT rights and just being a female photographer was like something and trying to make it in that world was something that was relatively new. And so she talked about her perspective from that. And then in Austin, we had this woman, Bethany, who founded she's from Texas, like from suburbia, suburbia in Texas. And she founded an Instagram handle called Brown Girls Climb. And basically her whole story was like, I walked into a climbing gym and I didn't feel like I belonged. And I wanted to create a community for women of color uh, to feel like they can be included in this environment, in this place. And and then we also, throughout the whole throughout the whole thing, we talked a lot about those issues, about being a woman in the outdoor industry, about, um, about uh ethnicity about race about sexuality like all of those things and about including being more inclusive in in the outdoor world because it is a pretty it's pretty homogeneous in a lot of ways and there's more conversations being had and it used I feel like even two years ago it was like more taboo to talk about these things and now it's it's not it's becoming not anymore we're allowed to talk about these things we're allowed to to say things that were previously made other people really uncomfortable and that's kind of what the whole that's kind of what the whole series was about and it was really fun and it was really eye-opening um especially for me I'm you know I'm from Boulder Colorado which is a very like a very white place and you know growing up I didn't get to interact with people who look different from me and 
just even just those three days being able to talk to people about their experiences in climbing and feeling unwelcome I always felt welcome in the climbing community um so that was eye-opening just just understanding and realizing that it's it is different for other people and that we all need to be aware of that especially me um having a voice yeah yeah, you said um, in the last couple of years you feel like this is starting to change or the, the discussion is starting to open up a little bit. And I'm just curious what what that might be in the last two years that's changed. Honestly, I think it had a lot to do with the Me Too movement. Yeah. I think that that's just permeated everything. And it's becoming acceptable to have those conversations now and to bring it up. And people are less afraid to talk about it. Um, it's just like the floodgates opened and now – we can we can have these conversations and i think that that's amazing yeah <clears throat> um random question but i have to ask climbing in the olympics is finally happening in 2020 do you have any plans to participate in any way i do not have olympic dreams <laughs> no um i think i'm too old honestly and i don't think i'm good enough um, this, the format is very interesting. It's a combination of lead climbing, bouldering, and speed. And it's something that everyone who even wants to have a shot at is having to learn like a new skill at yeah. some point, you know? And I have gone back and forth between thinking like, oh, this isn't what our sport is. This isn't like the essence of it. But honestly, now I've come around and realized that things change and I need to be supportive of that like younger generation that does have Olympic dreams and and I and see it as an opportunity and and try to be supportive of of those individuals and I'm excited I'm really excited to watch I hope maybe I get to participate in some way like commentating or I don't know something um but I'm excited to see it and I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be pretty cool yeah, it'll be interesting to see who winds up participating because the well, at least to me, like I've you know lead climbing, sport climbing, um, those things kind of they're sort of hand in hand. Yeah, speed climbing seems like it's sort of out of left field. Um, it totally is out of left field, and that's the one that we all had issues with when we heard about it. We we're yeah. like, why? Um, but now actually, I see a lot of kids who've learned how to speed climb, and I've been watching it more, and I'm kind of like, it's actually kind of cool. Not that I would ever do it, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> and, and it's very easily understandable from so mainstream audience. It's who's fastest. You can go side by totally. side. It's very watchable. Very watchable. Um, so I think that is important, and especially from an international perspective. There are some countries that have focused on, on yeah. speed climbing. So, you know, it isn't just the U.S. perspective on climbing or the European perspective on climbing. Um, yeah, overall, I definitely great. see it already changing our sport, though. Like, I see, you know, an increased gyms are just going up at a faster rate than ever before. Yeah. Gyms are automatically including speed walls now. Yeah. And I think we'll see an increase in, in kids trying to get involved in climbing because it is an Olympic sport. And that's something that seems to justify sport or, or acknowledge a level of sport is reached. Yeah, so basically you're hedging against the United States making any kind of impact in the 2020 Climbing Olympics, is that right? <laughs> I'm not saying that. I think we have a few really, really strong, strong candidates who, I mean, will definitely have a presence in climbing at the Olympics. Um, but it's tough. It's I've, People are, the kids these days are so, so talented and so focused and the olympics has just elevated that even more yeah 
Um, okay, another random question for you. Uh, so this is an, this is a question I I got from a friend of both of yours, um, and he to- I don't really understand it exactly, but he told me I had to ask. He said, um, "Ask Emily why Adrian won't do the Elaine dance, um, which pertains to uh, a climb uh, in Donner, I guess, where you hit a certain ledge that is maybe locally known as the Lane Ledge, and then whoever reaches that is required to do the, the dance. Elaine from Seinfeld thumbs out awkward dance." And it. apparently Adrian refuses to do it. He does that refuse to do it. So this is something that my friend Michelle Parker, who's a pro skier in Tahoe, I think she made it up. But it was it's it's yeah, it's exactly that. When you get to this ledge, it's like this downward sloping ledge. Um and we thought it would be funny to turn out and face out and do the Elaine dance because it's like this super awkward, weird, <laughs> kind of uncomfortable thing to watch. And we just thought, we started doing it, and so we called it the Elaine Ledge. And every person who goes up there, we make them do it. <laughs> and most people n- have seen that episode of Seinfeld because who hasn't? Right. Like who doesn't watch? Who didn't watch Seinfeld? Adrian didn't watch Seinfeld, <laughs> and therefore he doesn't respect it. And he doesn't have that pop culture knowledge that the rest of us have, and so he just thinks it's stupid and he won't do it. I wasn't allowed to watch TV as a kid. Just uh, <laughs> fill in some back <laughs> information. <laughs> So he'd never and then I spent eight months a year in a tent through like all my late teens and twenties, and never got to see it. I'm I'm also incredibly you know unconfident and sensitive about my dancing already. So doing even more awkward dancing in in public, maybe I'll get it's there. It's not one in day. public. It's in, in front of all your friends. <laughs> but then we do put it on Instagram. So always <laughs> <laughs> this tight tight-knit group of collectively 250,000 yes. Instagram followers. <laughs> exactly. Our closest friends. Totally. <laughs> okay. Well, I had to ask. Yeah. That's <laughs> oh, a good that's one. That's classic. That was good. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm curious. Um, I saw a photo of you guys. So your, your Instagram feeds, turns out I'm an Instagram stalker. Love it. Sorry, you guys had to learn. We all are. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> So you guys have all these awesome photos of like skiing in Tahoe, climbing in the mountains, and then recently there was a photo just like hanging out on Montera Beach. Oh yeah, wait. Which, Which one was, was Montera Beach? It's uh, like north of Half Moon Bay. Oh, that was with Landon and Lindsay. Yeah. A few months ago. Oh, is that why? Yeah. The photo yeah. one. Okay. So we recently lost a really close friend to a super aggressive form of cancer, and uh, oh, man. when. Uh, he was a friend that we just we are much of my relationship especially was about sport with him was about yeah. skiing really hard and being outside he was such a charger his name's Landon Bassett and so when he got sick you know the ways we hung out with him really changed and that was one of these just super special days where we just went out to the water and spent the day talking and debating and being together and uh, I think I one of us recently posted a photo of it yeah, I mean, I think in the past, especially maybe probably because of Landon's illness in the last five months or so, we've definitely put some things into perspective. And I mean, we've even talked about it recently. Like we've we've done more things where we just go do things with friends. It's not about like charging. It's not about sending or like doing something fast. We just go like this weekend, for ex- example, we just went and surfed, even though neither of us know how to surf. And we're terrible at it. And we just flailed around in the water. And afterwards, we were like, we need to do more things like that just with friends. Just because it's with friends and that's what's important. 
whether it's just sitting on the beach or um, just making more of an effort to do those things that aren't so like accomplishment based. <laughs> um, I <laughs> Is think that, hard that for you guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming less hard for us since you know we've lost people in our lives, and we're just starting to you know I think as you get older, you just start to understand what's important and become a little bit less selfish. And I mean, it's been from everything from getting a dog to like thinking about having a family and all of these things, just realizing that, that those things are important. Those like, those are the things you remember years down the line. And it might not be like the, you know, the really fast run you did or whatever. Um, Yeah. So I think that that those, those have become those Instagrams and stuff have become more present lately because we do have that perspective now. Yeah. This leads me to my next question, which is, apart from places where you guys go to to really kind of perform or compete, what are your favorite spots in California to go visit? Um, what do you guys do there? Maybe like top three from oh, each of you. Three. Yeah. Oh, from each of us. I mean, the. I'll go first because it's easier to go first. Oh, <laughs> I, go mean, I mean, the city, San Francisco, is definitely one of them. And it was a big part for me moving from ski towns in Colorado to, to a ski town here was the access to kind of like a quote-unquote world-class city, like with amazing food and beautiful architecture and culture and, and water. Water is key. And so we do like, like we could have just come down to do business today, but instead we like got a sweet hotel room in the city last night and had like a date and ate great food and like that feels so good and I love that it's close enough to do that um and then I don't know if I have three but a second one that pops right to mind is like all of the natural hot springs along the east Mm -hmm. side down to as far as Joshua Tree like that's a good one that's outside of our climbing or skiing even though oftentimes we combine the two but it seems like we never just go down the east side for a mission we prioritize time camping near some natural beautiful hot spring and just like taking in this big sky with no artificial lights around and it's still so so special just love it yeah yeah i mean emily i think I mean, we kind of live there, but we also just live in Squaw, so I can say Lake Tahoe. Um, <laughs> we've been really taking advantage of going to the lake the last few weeks, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's something we didn't always do. And maybe it's because we have a dog, and we're like, oh, we should just take the dog swimming, or we just need to go jump in the lake. Like, I've been so drawn to it recently, uh, just to just to be in it, like whether it's just jumping in or, or anything, something like that, or going out on a boat with friends. I think that the lake has been... I've just grown to appreciate it so much since I moved there, especially this year. And then I would say the east side, too, for me. Um, The Sierra east side is just there's so much to go do. But then also there's that really special aspect of, like, feeling very alone and, and just, like, parking the truck out in the middle of the desert and and sleeping next to a hot spring. That's – those have been some of my most favorite – times in California and then the uh, the last one that we haven't spent much time down there but we did a trip with the big the big snow year in Tahoe yeah two years ago maybe Mm -hmm. and we were trying to ski around near Mammoth and it was a March and we had this huge rain event where it rained to like 11,000 feet and everything was like ruined (laughs) and we were like this is this isn't working what should we do and we ended up just 
driving down to Joshua Tree and I'd never been to Joshua Tree and just we don't I feel like I don't spend enough time in the desert and I really loved it and I thought I just loved everything about it we didn't even climb hard we just Mm -hmm. like hung out and that was a really special trip for me and I it just stuck in my head for some reason and again we didn't do anything special we just hung out and climbed a little bit and you know just enjoyed it yeah joshua tree is pretty spectacular it's amazing it's so beautiful yeah yeah Yeah. i think that's like all that's a great example of like what i one of the things i think california is so special for is like you do need a little flexibility if you just want to be a skier in in tahoe it can be a really frustrating place to be and um because the snow is not always great and i think the same would be true as a climber like if you just want to be a climber but if you're willing to be a little bit flexible with your fun or your activities that the change from coast to mountains and the change from elevation to no elevation means like it's phenomenal somewhere for a really cool activity um so just having that little bit of flexibility has just opened up so much for us. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question, and then I'll let you guys go. You can get out of here. Continue <laughs> with your beautiful day in San Francisco. Yes. Um, what's coming up for you guys in the fall? What are you guys looking forward to at the moment? So right now we're kind of like hurtling, it feels like. Like a, a few weeks ago, it was like, oh, in the fall we have this expedition, and it's way, way out there, and all of a sudden it feels like we're just racing towards it, and we have, there's no way we have all the time we need to be ready for it. And that's how almost all of our big expeditions feel. But we're planning to go with two of our closest friends, Jim Morrison and Hillary Nelson, to try to ski the fourth tallest mountain in the world, which is called Lhotse. It sits right next to Everest. Hillary and I have actually both climbed it before. Um, but it has this potentially incredible ski line where directly from the summit, a 3,000-foot cool wall, like elevator shaft cool wall, drops off the summit down onto the famous Lhotse face that lots of people have heard about, and that continues another few thousand feet down uh, to the western Coombe. And it's this total dream line, and we're hoping to go try to slide down it on skis. Nobody's done that before, right? Lots of people have tried. A number of professional skiers have tried. Um, and, and so, you know, Chris Davenport skied on the face, and Jamie Laidlaw right. and Chris Erickson have actually skied in the cool wall, but only the very bottom of it. Hillary's tried before. I've tried before. Um, and, and it is because of this, like, iconic line that so many people, skiers, have looked at it. Um, the challenge is everyone who's tried thus far has tried in the spring when it's much easier to get up there because it shares the climbing route with Mount Everest, the normal south side climbing route all the way to Camp 3. That means there's a lot of infrastructure that makes it quite affordable and easy to get to. Um, But there's almost no snow in the spring. The snow in Nepal doesn't come in the winter. It comes during the summer monsoon. And so we're, to my knowledge, the first team trying it in the fall when we hope while while avalanche danger might be higher, there might be a lot more snow filling the couloir, and that's what stopped most teams in the past, is not having having too much ice and rock and not enough snow. So, uh, yeah, no one skied from the top yet. Sounds exciting. You guys stoked to get back into the tents, the hypoxic tents, <laughs> I mean? I'm working on being stoked. <laughs> for the tent or the expedition? <laughs> I, I mean... I'm stoked for the expedition. I think when it becomes uh, these things never feel real to me until we like get everything figured out. 
And so for me right now, it's all just about logistics. Adrian loves logistics. I don't love them quite as much. <laughs> and so I'm is, just going with the flow. <laughs> it is kind of the side a lot of people don't necessarily see or recognize, like, of these expeditions. Like, the big no-oxygen Everest expeditions I, uh, I did in 16 and 17 took, like, years of preparation and fundraising. And so right now we're five weeks before the trip, and there's still massive uncertainties with can we afford the trip? Can the logistics come into place in this unusual autumn season? Um, so we're kind of like, it's kind of all the no fun stuff right now. Um, a lot of computer time and a lot of um, begging for money from people that would love to give it to us, but maybe it's not that easy. And so, uh, yeah, we're working hard to make it happen. Yeah, cool. Well, sorry, so a, a quick note on logistics. So uh, my girlfriend and I happen to be planning a backpacking trip right now. Um, and we're doing like six days in Olympic National Forest or Olympic National Park. Um, it's going to be rad, stoked. But like the last month and a half have just been like trying to line up everything, right? And it's yeah. not even comparable to what you guys are talking about <laughs> going to the other side of the world and like climbing, you know, this peak and everything. Um, but I find that logistics are like kind of nice like foreplay for the actual act yes. of going and doing it. Cause then it's like, I, I really hate looking at photos of where I'm going to go. Cause then you kind of, it like sets your expectations in this yeah. weird way I found. But um, in terms of actually like building the stoke to like go and have the experience, I kind of like doing the logistics these days and computer, you know, it's like the internet. You can do it all on the internet. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think that's why Adrian likes it. <laughs> I love foreplay. But for me, I just don't, <laughs> I love foreplay. I just don't like the uncertainty part. Like, that's the part that stresses me out a little bit. But I get to a point where I just realize that I can't control. All, there's a lot of things I can't control. And I like having control over everything. But when it comes to these types of trips, I have very, I feel like I have very little control. Hmm. And so that's really hard for me to adjust to. But once I get used to it, then I can kind of go into the mode where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to let, just see how things play out. Because I can't emotionally deal with trying to like rein everything in. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is a great point, though. Like how we might approach some expeditions like differently. Like I ask Em all the time, like, "Are you excited? Are you excited?" I'm always stoked. I'm like so optimistic, and and truly, like you don't get excited until no. you get on a plane. No, I'm with like, your teammates, and you're like, "I'm going." Literally, it's not happening until I'm on the plane, and I kind of try to set myself up so that I don't get disappointed. Yeah. You know, I like think of the alternative, like if it doesn't happen, then I'll do this and this and this and this and it'll be great. So I kind of like lay out. I just like try to check my expectations. Yeah. So that I'm not disappointed. Yeah. Whereas oh, I'm like yeah. all in months in advance. Yeah. Like, like. Yeah. You act like it's always happening, even though a lot of times I'm like, I don't know if we're <laughs> even doing this right now. So why are you getting excited? <laughs> Checking expectations. Yeah. yeah. It's a good lesson. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool guys well thanks so much for coming by really appreciate it thanks for listening everyone if you want to keep up with Adrian and Emily Emily's Instagram handle is at Emily A. Harrington Adrian can be found on Snapchat at Adrian JB if you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas our music today is a track called Coming Home by Ryan Anderson and comes courtesy of the Free Music Archive. See you next time.